Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. It is such a pleasure to have Brooke Odropanak and Beth Kelly as guests on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Brooke and Beth are the co-authors of Teaching, Learning, and Trauma, grades 6 through 12, Responsive Practices for Holding Steady in Turbulent Times, which was just released by Corwin. The timing was not intentional, but couldn't be better. I recently cozied up with this great new resource and found that Brooke and Beth's work illuminates the impact of trauma from a personal level, like what does this mean for me, and a professional perspective, what does this mean for kids in schools? So Beth and Brooke, welcome to the podcast and good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Happy to be here. Hi, Brooke. Good morning, Beth. So let's start with some introductions. Beth, you bring a rich mental health perspective to your partnership with Brooke. And I've recently started following you a bit on social media and getting to know you and your work at a deeper level. And I really, really appreciate the different resources that you provide for educators. So I'm just wondering if you can tell our listeners just a little bit about you, your work in both the private sector and in schools. Yes, thank you. So my name is Beth Kelly, and I'm a psychotherapist, and I worked as a school-based counselor for most of my career, which is where Brooke and I connected. And in addition to that, I work um, currently as a consultant with schools and educators, uh, nonprofits, and, and businesses around really helping them support their most valuable resource, which is their people. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you. So Brooke, how about you? I know that you and I have had opportunities to work together for the last 18 years. So we probably must have met when we were like 11. And I know that during this time, you have had incredible impact in schools and you bring a really rich school perspective to the partnership. Do you mind sharing a little bit about you and your work? Oh, thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Um, yes. So I've been in and around education for over 25 years. And at some point in this amazing journey, um, Beth and I were able to connect. And for me, I had a, a, a moment where I realized that the missing link in a lot of the work we're doing around teaching and learning was around the mental health perspective and caring for the whole child and caring for the whole teacher um, and caring for the whole principal. Uh, so currently, I actually work in a, a a Denver area uh, school district, supporting the things I care about deeply, which is professional learning, um, and helping to create the conditions under really, really, under which really great people can do pretty amazing work. So I'm happy to be here, and, and thanks for giving Beth and I an opportunity to talk this out because I really feel like it's an important topic, especially now. Absolutely. And I just, I can't wait to dig in. I think, you know, thinking about how do we support people? And <clears throat> I'm already really appreciative of the way that you've both framed that this work is for students, 
teachers and school leaders, and I'm assuming also in many ways families and communities. And so I think this is going to be a really, really rich conversation and really timely. I do want to really honor the work that you've done with your book. Um, I loved it. I you know, cozied up one Saturday morning with a giant pot of coffee before anyone in the house woke up, and I just was tearing through it. I actually had to go back and reread some parts because I had read it so quickly. And then I was doing a little bit of snooping around, and I read one of the reviews from Chris Devani, who is a a mentor of mine and you know just an educational leader that I really appreciate and I loved her words. She wrote, "Oh boy, do I need this book. If you work with teens, you know they can be quirky. Add chronic stress and trauma to the mix and one can feel at a loss on how to keep the teaching and learning going." So, I thought for our conversation we would start by talking about trauma. Um, my guess is that a lot of us outside of the mental health field have their own personal definitions, but we maybe don't really know exactly what it is or how it's defined. So I'm kind of wondering if, if you can help us kind of frame that so we have almost a common working definition for our conversation, and then we can talk a little bit about the current reality for teachers, leaders, and students. That sounds great. So when I think about trauma, and this is... Um when I think about getting down to its root is really a wound. And if I think about being wounded, either maybe physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, there's so many different ways. When I'm deeply wounded, that changes the sense of safety. It it, it changes my worldview. It changes this, my sense of myself. And you certainly can, um, connect the dots between what that impact is for children and young people who are just growing and the impact can be huge. Um, Brooke and I talk about chronic stress and trauma because for people these days, now we're all having this lived experience this last seven months, this lived experience of chronic stress. So educators, school leaders, parents, people who may not have an experience of a specific trauma in their life or growing up in an environment where they were maybe uh, chronically traumatized or wounded, have this experience of this huge change and the weight of this chronic stress that can really show up similarly to a, a traumatic response, which is many of the things that we're all feeling right now. So when our nervous systems perceive this, this, this threat, and it can be a real threat or a perception of a threat, that's really important to know we can kick into this fight, flight, or freeze. Everybody's talking about that right now. It's our, it's our nervous system's natural response to danger. It's protective. It's our, it's our basic warning system for, for our own survival. So it's really critical and it's hard to just sort of turn off once the switch gets activated. And when we're living in this chronic stress time, our nervous systems are sort of activated all the time and it's hard to find some relief. So that might feel like an increase of anxiety or um, a, a racing heart or having trouble sleeping when we get in that hyper aroused state of fight or flight, get really hyper focused on something like thoughts that go over and over and over in your mind, you know, during the middle of the night, or we go into that freeze response, which is sort of like getting too cold. If, if hyper arousal is getting too hot and that anxious, if you've ever felt anxiety, you actually feel warmed in your body, right? Then that freeze response is, is the opposite. It's like getting too cold. And for some people that's feeling more lethargic, maybe more depressed, like 
thoughts get really muddy. It's more difficult to get out of bed, right? And we're experiencing these things now, maybe at all different times through the day. And the one thing that I would love for people to hear out of this is that it's really normal. It's our normal response. And sometimes we're looking at other people going, uh, am I doing, someone's doing this better than me. Someone's responding better than me or easier. They're having an easier time or a harder to, we're comparing, right? And it's, and part of our work uh, is really around helping people just start to increase their awareness around what's happening for them so that they can attend to their needs. Wow. So that's interesting to think about the relationship between trauma and chronic stress, because I think you are hearing both. So even if I haven't experienced a traumatic event personally during this time, I might be still reacting in the same way in which I would have responded to trauma because the chronic stress has in some ways created this wound or created this, these feelings in me that I'm then ex- reacting, as you said, to those factors. Yes, there's that sense of our nervous system just being highly activated all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so obviously these things all happen on a spectrum, you know, and it's yeah. not to we can't wait, make quite the direct connect that someone who's experienced a deep trauma and someone who's under chronic stress, you know, may or may not, but that our nervous systems and our reactions can be very similar. Mm-hmm. Beth, thank you so much for helping us think about what that might mean for us personally like what that looks like and what that sounds like. I think, you know, thinking about anxiety, thinking about that idea of like, I'm either too hot or too cold. I'd love to get into kind of what, how, how does trauma show up for both students and educators? So Brooke, do you want to talk a little bit about students and the the student or the educator perspective? Sure. It just makes me think about just the day in the life of any of us right now. Um, and thinking about the highs and the lows. I, I was thinking earlier this week about this experience often feels like a roller coaster uh, between, I, I think what Beth's illustrating there, between you know maybe some overreaction, overexcitement, kind of a hyperspace to a low of how is this ever gonna end? How am I gonna persist? I'm so exhausted, right? I'm counting down the days until the holiday gets here. So I, I think that that is a common experience at every level, right? We have, the, we have these shared parallel processes in the classroom and then we have in our school and then we have in the principal's office, right? So I think there's this way in which we're kind of all riding our waves or our roller coasters. And we may, not, we may be hitting our highs at the same time and our lows at the same time or not. And so things seem really dysregulated, right? We're really... We're kind of in there thinking, when is this going to normalize or even out? And we're finding that it's just not. So I I would imagine that um, I think there's anybody even listening to this today that would think like, oh, I think I can connect and relate to feeling unstable, right? And to feeling untethered and feeling hopeful and then despair within within the same perhaps hour. So I, I think that, Michelle, when you, we think about it from our own perspective, we can pretty well trust that whether we're a teacher or we're an administrator, um, that our kids and our families are on the same roller coaster ride as we are, uh, and that we are really in this together. And I would say certainly uh, educators who I think Beth and I for years have framed educators as being first responders. And I think the field at large is you know, really pointing to that, especially now. Uh, But that vicarious trauma element that comes about for being on the front line 
of anything that comes into your classroom as a teacher or comes into your school as a principal is for real. And I think there's this, uh, sometimes we, I don't think we give ourselves permission to name that for what it is because we are hardworking. We are positive people. Um, we are lovers of people. I think we love kids. We love our peers. Uh, and I think it's just really hard to admit that this may be bigger um, than something we've ever dealt with in the past. Or if we have dealt with it in the past, maybe it just wasn't to the degree that we are now because there's very little reprieve. So there's the degree and there's the duration of of the experience, of the shared experience right now. So if we're taking that then into schools, into classrooms, into systems, I know Beth, you do a lot of work with systems. And Brooke, you're you know also in systems as well, but more at that school and classroom level. I'd love to think about what are some steps that educators can take right now and kind of, you know, Beth, from your perspective and then maybe from Brooke's perspective, because I, I think that what you've shared so far is probably really resonating for a lot of listeners, like we've mentioned. But let's let's go a little further. Let's think about some what are some steps that we could take? Beth, why don't you start us off? Yeah, thank you. I think the first step that we all have to take as adults is the responsibility to care for ourselves. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our students, to our colleagues, to our families, to our children, to our parents, right? To really take care of ourselves. And this is hard as, you know, Brooke and I talk about this all the time when people in education are heart-centered, value-driven givers. And so it's so challenging when we start to have these conversations around those famous dreadful words, self-care. Right? <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. I know. I'm, I'm thinking up other words. As soon as I can, I'm going to get them out to you. But how, how am I, excuse me, managing my stress? How am I showing up each day? And what are the steps I need to take to show up as a centered available, present, calm adult influence mm. to my students um, in order to have a classroom that feels regulated and calm, right? That's how we are influencing our students' nervous systems is by calming our own. That is really interesting to think about and that that's going to have to take purposeful, intentional action. Yes. Yes, it does. So kind of moving then a little bit deeper, what do we, what do, we do? So here are a couple things um, to be thinking about. Right now, again, when we're, uh, our nervous systems and our brains are sort of, I'm using finger bunnies you can't see, offline because of this chronic stress and, and traumatic event. I think we're all noticing that. Like my memory is not so great. I have trouble making decision. I'm on decision-making overload. You know, all of these different things that are happening for us right now. Less is more. And this is a fundamental strategy mm. that Brooke and I talk about throughout the book, but now more than ever as a survival skill, really. So how can I start to allow the most important thing to be the most important thing. So from a mental health perspective, how am I caring for myself so that I might care for others? What are my uh, practices and rituals that I have? For example, starting my day or ending my work day as I transition into whatever's at home or transitioning from home at work <laughs> to home <laughs> at 
home, right? <laughs> yes. And, and those different ways. Um, and Brooke has some great ideas in terms of classroom recommendations of this less is more strategy. And I want to say, I know this is so difficult for educators because it is not the norm. Educators uh-huh. are brilliant and they want students to achieve and to grow and expand. And, and, and there's usually a more is more culture and philosophy. So this is a really challenging step. This less is more, and we're not advocating you give up rigor or engagement or any of those things, but but we are throwing down the gauntlet in terms of how might you apply a less is more strategy right now. So interesting, Beth. So I think about, you know, preparing for my day or my week or kind of something that's coming up and I'm thinking, okay, self-care, I've got to take care of myself so I can take care of others. Then it's about, it sounds like prioritizing creating some rituals and routines. So I have that transition from one kind of space. I too, am doing the finger bunnies from one space to another, those rituals and routines so that I can prioritize less is more. And then that will in turn help me create that calm space for learners and for myself. Yes. Okay. So Brooke, For students, what are some actions that educators and administrators might take or that we can share with students so that they can then be more proactive? So back to this um, thinking about or the concept of parallel processes. So if Mm -hmm. our systems are on overload or underload, right, it's going to be the same situation and dynamic for our students. So there is this idea of simplification of processes. You know, I think, Michelle, we talk a lot about, you know, all the all the magic happens in the planning. Right. Right. Um, And so in that just planning around what's the most important Mm. and what are the things that kids are going to tap into and understand and have access to that isn't going to require an amazing amount of resource because our kids are running on fumes as well. So when I think about that, I think about number one, first and foremost, and I think Beth and I would say that this has got to be the greatest takeaway, is connection Mm. is the the most important thing we have to plan for and deliver on right now. And so in that, as you think about your lesson planning, I mean, I'm just thinking concretely, right? Beginning, middle, end, where are there connections for, where can connections take place between teacher and students, but most importantly, students and students. And then as that that lesson wraps up and you move on, where are you as an, as an adult getting your connection? How are colleagues connecting? So I we have to prioritize that in, in whatever asp- in ever, whatever way that we we are looking at teaching and learning right now. Um, and I think that that requires us then to also have to let some other things go. So what does that look like for you as a person who, as Beth is saying, um, you know, really has to embrace the concept of less is more. And we do want to do more is more because we have all these amazing things we want to try to learn and and implement in a remote learning environment. (laughs) And our capacity is limited because we are suffering from chronic stress and trauma. It's just if we're in this world breathing this air and drinking water and looking out our window, we're having a shared experience around how the difficulty of it. So I I would just say that 
we just have to be in, we have to be in relationship. And that is the greatest mitigator, or we call it a protective factor um, in coming up or butting up against the effects of trauma and chronic stress. So what does that look like? As I think of uh, myself planning, it's, well, how am I leaning in? Where might there, might where there be some humor? Where might there be some joy and some celebration and some affirmation? How might I need to slow some things down so I can know kids' names and I can see their eyeballs? And I think the most effective classrooms right now are the places where teachers are making those connections because then the table is set for the learning to happen. Because without that, without the mitigated trauma response, without regulation, you may have the best designed lesson and you may have be utilizing technology at its highest form. But if kids are not present and can't be there in that regulated state, it isn't going to matter. And if you can't be there in your most regulated state, whether you're participating in professional learning or you're actually in your classroom with kids, then it isn't, it isn't going to matter. So there is something about us needing to prioritize human connection and the leaning in and the dialing down and the less is more and having to let some things go that we might think, oh, no, our kids aren't going to learn. There won't be the rigor. We, they're not going to meet standards. And I, I just I would I would think we're going to live to see that that necessarily isn't the case, because even if you're after those two things and all the mm-hmm. other things we're after, we're not going to see the results because we aren't in a mental place. We are not well enough and regulated enough for that to take um, effect or form. So interesting, Brooke. So I'm thinking about that idea of connections and relationships are almost like creating that Velcro. I mean, in order for our brains to function properly and for us to be learners and to be able to retain information and apply information and synthesize, as a classroom teacher, I need to really think about my rituals and routines. What can kids expect when they come in? What does that look like and sound like? I need to play on those intentionally. And then within that, I need to really intentionally identify and plan for relationship building, student to student and teacher to student. And then I can begin to start focusing in on learning when we're in a safe space. But then again, that learning also, we need to think about less is more. That with those content standards and with that rigor, we need to be more selective than ever before in terms of prioritizing content. Mm-hmm. So that. If, if that's an accurate paraphrase for thinking about students and teachers in that context, I'd love to hear, Beth, your thoughts on something that Brooke just brought up about relationships with colleagues. Yes. Connection. How, how do we in our Zoom boxes or in our virtual classrooms, or if you're, you know, there are a lot of teachers I know who are teaching from their classrooms with no kids in the room. And their colleague might be next door, but they're not having those interactions. So Beth, in your work with systems and administrators and leaders, how do we build those connections for colleagues? Because you just reminded us a bit ago that it starts with us. So how do we take care of that as professionals? That is a great question. And I want to just go back to support everything that Brooke is saying around that connection piece, because as humans... We are hardwired for connection. There's a quote that goes around in the therapist community now. I don't know who said it, but it's a great quote. <laughs> it's that <laughs> we are uh, 
we're hardwired for connection, which is true. Right? Like I joke in, in presentations, we're not snakes. We don't have just like 50 snake babies and leave them and never see them again. So when we're born, we are dependent on other humans for our survival. And that never actually changes. And so when we feel deeply connected with other humans, we feel safe. We're safe from threats. We're safe from predators, so to speak, right? And so that's hardwired into our nervous system. So if we're hardwired for connection, trauma rewires us for protection. And so when I'm in a mode of protecting myself, I'm unable or it's much more difficult for me to connect with somebody else. And so as you think about our students and why that piece is so critical for forming connections first, and same with, now back to your question, for us as adults in this community, when we are feeling scared and isolated and we withdraw and we're overwhelmed and all those things are happening to activate our nervous system, it becomes, it's like this double-edged sword because it becomes difficult to connect. And yet that's what we need to do more than anything. So I would encourage adults to be and in in um, school leaders to be thinking about what are the quality of the meetings that you're having. I mean, as educators, we can all joke about pre-COVID <laughs> staff meetings, right? <laughs> and now I'm just imagining just the blur for people having staff meetings or these times um, where information just needs to get disseminated. And I would challenge people, school leaders. Hey, what can go in an email and how might you better use these opportunities for staff to connect in ways that, we're, again, we're not used to. It might feel like sort of, well, we're wasting time or that's not valuable, but that's what your people need. And then as I think about people meeting in their PLCs or with departments or in whatever the structures are of your school, how might you form some protocols around those meetings so that they don't just turn into sort of sessions where we're venting and complaining and talking about all of the things that's really important to do. And there needs to be time and space for that, but there also needs to be time for celebration and for joy without guilt and for creativity and for there are no more brilliant group of people than educators to come together to creatively solve a problem. Right. And to look at some opportunities for innovation where they are. This isn't about we all this isn't about toxic positivity, you know, where we all have to pretend that that something that this isn't happening. And how do we stay rooted in what we can control and what's out of our control? And when you think of that less is more philosophy, it calls us to actually start to say, oh, this one thing or two things is, is possible because I actually have no control over that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that what it, what's in my sphere of influence, what is the reality of this world happening right now? And in that comes some opportunity for possibilities. So I would be thinking about what is the quality of my connection with my colleagues and to be really intentional about getting what we need. And sometimes that might be disconnecting from colleagues and from school as well, which is really important. Absolutely. And those are really, really practical steps, Beth, that I think school leaders or team leaders can take. 
that idea of like the, the quality of the interaction, I think is critical because we're all interacting in a different mode. And so there's, there's this feeling of not inauthenticity, but it's a little uncomfortable. There's a little bit of awkwardness in our connections, usually in the professional sphere. I think people are having more personal connections, maybe in their personal spheres, but in the professional sphere, it does feel a little bit awkward at times. But I think that balance of what's the quality connection? How is this not wasting time? Because I think that that is a feeling that's very pervasive right now, that there's so much to do. I can't take the time to have a five-minute conversation in our 50-minute meeting about, you know, who's dressing up their pets for Halloween. Um, you know, some for some folks, that just feels really, really, like really tough tension. But thinking about authentic ways to have connections around meaningful and purposeful work that isn't opening up that entire can of, I can't control this, what am I going to do? seems like some logical steps. And can I just add something to that, Michelle? Please. Feels important to me. And, and I think Beth and I talk about this quite a bit too, is that educators are amazing. They're mm-hmm. creative, they're innovative. And to best point, we lead by our hearts. And I think in that we have to trust ourselves. I think we have to lean in a, around what we know how to do well. And I mm-hmm. think most of us would say, we know how to care for kids and we know what kids need and we know what makes them smile and we, what makes them laugh. And I think in this environment, it's really hard to have the kind of connection we're used to that also fills our tank. But it's also the thing that lets us know, like, we are good at this. Like, we are in the right field. This is confirmation that I chose this path. And in the absence of that, I think it even increases our likelihood to feel like we don't know what we're doing and we don't know where we're going. And this is not, there's, there's not much give back at the moment. So I, I think in that, like to think and tr- to, to lean in and to think about what we know and what we trust, and we have that voice inside that tells us what we want more of and what we want less of. And it can be really blurred because of all the ambiguity and certainty and tumultuousness. But to have a moment where you can lean in and go, what do I know to be true? I know that caring about kids and seeing them laugh is what gets me up. And so to lean in and to figure out with our peers, and again, we can't do this in isolation. How can we increase the likelihood that that happens more? And the sense of, I can't control this. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Am I going to be back in person? Am I going to go remote? Um, What's happening to my own kids, my own family, my parents? Less of that and more of, okay, what do I know needs to happen in the world that I do have any sort of influence over? Um, And to trust myself that this is, I know why I'm in this profession. And to be me and to show up in that space. with real authenticity. And I think that can be an energy giving point. Absolutely. And so impactful and important for teachers and everyone to think about what is it that you do well? And how can you tap into that sense of agency and self-efficacy and and, and lean into that almost as an energy source? So as we wrap up today, I'd love to hear from each of you. What is your hope for the 2021 school year, the remainder of the school year? That's a big question. 
My hope is that we all can trust ourselves enough to simplify, to know what matters, and to move from that inner place like Brooke is describing of what we know to be healthy and a fortifying and life-giving in our connections with other people as we move through this um, really challenging experience. I think it's time to, it's okay to spend a little bit more time going inside to find those resources versus feeling like we need to look too far outside of ourselves. So trust your wisdom. Thanks, Beth. How about for you, Brooke? Not surprising. Mine would be fairly connected to Beth's. Um, I have a lot of hope, actually. Um, and I have a hope in people. And I think at the end of the day, we we know what to do and we know how to be. It's just giving ourselves license to do that and license to say, I'm going to do less. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to I'm going to step out against the current um, that tells me that I to do more is, is more in line with what I, you know, is what I will serve kids better and my, my peers better. And I just, I think that maybe we shift the definition around what we think self-care is in terms of being selfish or self-focused um, and really just think about, you know, that you're precious and you're on you're the reason why education works and kids come to school. And I mean, I, I just can't think of any more precious resource right now than educators. And so there's this, the thought of like, you got this and nobody has it figured out uh, and we just need each other. And so let's just dial it down and be present to what we can do. Thank you. Both we can do a so lot. Much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Brooke. We can do a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, You have provided so much information and inspiration today that I know our listeners are going to be just really thoughtful and thinking about their own personal next steps. And I think you've offered a lot of, of opportunities for everyone. So thank you both very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us, Michelle. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.